Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 60, Downtime. Well, as usual, we need to get our definition of downtime. So uh, take us away. Downtime. So downtime can be broadly described as any time you're not in combat, technically. Um, but we're probably going to be more specific. Um, uh, but a lot of Dungeons and Dragons is about fighting monsters. A lot of it is about going into dangerous areas, experiencing dangerous environments. Um, and downtime is really any time that you're not in a dangerous environment or a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the world really broadens in scope. Um, and the game really broadens in scope. Because when you get into combat, it t- turns into like, okay, here's the rules... Here's the six-second increments you can use your action and bonus action and movement, and it's much more gamey. But then once once that stops, once combat ends, and there's no more, you know, uh, you're you're not taking turns anymore. That's really when the game explodes into something that's that's much more improv based mm-hmm. and um, and can be story based and can be very very interesting. And your players can just kind of run wild. Um, so yeah, downtime is any time that you're not in the action, but some of the most interesting parts of the game can happen in downtime. I think that the most interesting parts of the game to your players are the parts that happen in downtime because they're all choices that the characters have to make or that the players have to make of their own volition. You know, there's no, there's no plot hooks pushing them to do things. It's more of like them pursuing their own goals. So you really get to see what the characters want to do in their choice of downtime activities. So I would push back against that a little bit. Um, I think this will kind of expose the differences between my game um, and your guys' game. Is the... um, Sometimes it feels like you guys are... Like, like Will, you're organizing a bunch of people playing their own games. Mm -hmm. And it would almost be like game night was just like everyone brought their own solo board game to play and just sat in the same room and like did their own mini game. And that's, yeah, that's sometimes, that's just an observation I've had about Ural's new type of game. See, I disagree with that because like we still do things as a group together, but then on our own time, like let's say we're not going to play for like a whole week and in Will's game, time goes by as if. You know, you were playing in the real world. So if you if a week goes by, then a week has gone by since your characters have been in the dungeon. So like you can you can do things in the world for that week that you're not playing the game, and that's really what like the downtime is in his game, which allows you to do uh, things that your own character might want to pursue that maybe the other party party members in the group might not want to. Mm. Interesting. That makes sense. That so. The pros and the pro of that I can see is that the game, I like the idea of the game always being on, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. But the con is I don't know game night D and D night is like the sacred ritual, and I kind of like when it's like all right it's Wednesday night like this is the night we play D and D like it, the flipping of the switch from off to on is is kind of fun too. But I still ha- we still have that because there's so much more you can accomplish as a group. Mm-hmm. Like going sure. it, like you can't go into the dungeon solo and like expect to live. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. is it okay? So, not to get too down in the weeds, um, I'm gonna go back to this original definition about you saying when you're not in combat, then you're mm-hmm. in downtime. 
Um, and I would change the change that from when you're not in the adventure. Then you're like, let's say you're in um, the Tomb of Annihilation, and there's lots of things you do that are not combat, but they're also not downtime. Like you're always pursuing, like you're moving toward the goal. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on about like the style of campaign you have is going to influence the types of downtime you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Jake, how do you feel about that? Like, is combat like the biggest factor? Like, is da- I guess danger is the biggest factor that determines whether or not you do downtime. Like, can you have yeah. danger in your downtime? I guess is the other question. I don't think oh, so. Oh man. Oh, I think so. I, hey, I think yeah. it has to, but that's what makes it fun. Like you kind of have to set up the trope of, all right, combat button is switch to <laughs> to off. So we're just gonna have fun now. <laughs> Woo! Everybody go party in the city. Woo! Like, and then it becomes this kind of like, oh, thank gosh, we're like we we're, we're carousing. We can just like relax. And then like if an assassin jumps out, it's like whoa! Suddenly this isn't downtime. But like, like that's the the juxtaposition that makes it interesting. It's like the story can occasionally interrupt your downtime. Or like, what if a player wants to go get drunk at a bar and fight someone? Okay, so let me explain it a different way. If you're in a dungeon crawl Uh and you're just like exploring, then by this definition, that is downtime because there's no combat. And that seems wrong. No, no, I said dangerous situation. So I would consider the whole... Yeah, I don't know. It it blurs into gray areas, you know, like is sleeping in a safe part of a cleared out dungeon downtime... See, I, I I disagree with both of you guys. This is <laughs> oh, here we go. I think any any time spent away from the party is considered downtime because you're doing your own thing. Like if you think about when you're with your friends and you're all hanging out, like that's you hanging out together. But then you go your own separate ways and you have your own lives and you do your own things. But it, it and and those kind of things like build your identity and who you are and your choices that you make outside uh, of that. And I think that hmm. I think that for me, downtime is any time spent away from the group. That you're not playing with. See, so in game, oh, that's so different. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm just. It would be like watching a sitcom like Friends or yeah. uh, Frasier or Community, and watching them all, like, at their day jobs or in college classes or like doing stuff by themselves. Like, it wouldn't be the whole show. Is them together? Them always in the same apartment? Them always in the same coffee shop? Like that's. D&D to me is the collaborative nature and if everyone I don't know I just yeah and that's what that's what that's kind of what downtime is is downtime is like a singular like person's like quest it's like what you do when you're not adventuring right yeah so it's like it could be anything it could be you know like them like going and well okay so I I think we've uncovered an important philosophical difference of game mastering here Uh Uh, Jake would you put would you have a downtime session in your game like just a whole night is nothing but downtime. Uh, yeah, I think I would. Um, have you done that? Uh, I have, but things always get complicated. Like, mm-hmm. there's always, um, yeah, I've had whole things of downtime, but things happen. Like, uh, the the villain might show up and intimidate them, or um, an, an assassin might try to poison their drink, or um, you know, just there's a giant rat in the basement of their their new place they just bought. You know, there, there's always going to be something. Some combat or threat or environment where tension is brought back into it. Because, I don't know, I I treat my table as like the sacred time where it's like I want everyone involved. And the more people that are on their phones, the more people that are checked out, I feel like that that comes from bad downtime. I think good downtime, no one's on their phone. Everyone is involved in the game together in downtime even. 
But a lot of people hear downtime and they go, all right, you guys go buy stuff. I'll be over here on my phone. And I feel like that stops being D&D for that person because they're tuned out while someone else is playing their own personal game. So I agree completely with that. Yeah, so do I. Which is why I would take downtime to be like in a text message during the week or during a, a private meeting during the week. Interesting. So like yeah, a lot of a lot of like you can you can have a lot of in-game investment where your character is doing things in the world, but like not everyone at the table needs to be there for that, and that could still be fun and that can still be something that you're working towards, like building you know your own house or keep or castle, mm-hmm. yeah, or that, just that... going on your own solo like quest, like that's something that you can do with the DM like during downtime. Yeah, but not everybody needs to be there because I also agree like if if. The DM is just like working with one player to resolve like their character's actions, like at the table at that moment. That that kind of takes away from the whole thing. Yeah. So, like I I think we're actually like in more of an agreement than we I think, think so too. Because I- like I like when I'm with like the party, I want to do things with the party. I'm like, well, let's do something like we can't do like when we're all like mm-hmm. separated in our alone like downtime. Like when we're all here, like let's all work together. Let's let's go explore the dungeon more and get more gold because that's, that's something that so, we can all do. Yeah. But, so yeah. So I 100% agree because I don't think it's. I think downtime, yeah, can be very boring if you don't do it right. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it's just like a few people like messing around and goofing <laughs> off in town, and nobody yeah. else is yeah. like. Everyone else is like, well, I'm just waiting for the adventure to get going again. So so I found my issue, and I think it's the my main thing is I didn't consider all that. Uh, downtime, like my players texting me because I don't have an always ticking clock of the game always happening. Hmm. So I would just call that planning for next session. Oh, okay. For you guys, you guys just snap your fingers and go, that, that happened. That happened on Tuesday when you guys, you know, we're all not together. Um, which is <clears> interesting because I don't, I don't have that capability. So I call that, we're talking about the exact same thing. Like, Hey, yeah. next time we play, mm-hmm. I want to build this. I want to spend this much money on this. How much would this cost? And I go, Oh, there would be this much for this yeah. many days. Oh yeah. It's the same so, thing. Same thing. It's just, you guys get to snap your fingers and it, it happened. Whereas mine, we have to get to the table. And I go, okay, what are you guys plans for this session? Um, interesting. Yeah. So different, um, not even yeah. philosophies, same philosophies, just different, um, terminology timers yeah and for me like i don't I don't know if i'm getting ahead here but i i almost it, it almost kind of sucks it um in in normal like dnd games that i played it compared to wills because in his because the clock is always ticking there is more time for you to do stuff in the world outside of uh outside of the game whereas in normal dnd it's like well we pick up where we left off and we're still like halfway through the dungeon and we're still right. in the dungeon and there's not room for my character to like do anything in the world so yeah. that it, it there's there's kind of like a lack of downtime in a lot of games that i've played right and i think that's fine too and maybe we are because this, this is still supposed to be the definition yes um, but i'm thinking of like novels or movies when you are let's say harry potter like the things he gets up to there is downtime built into that story of like mm-hmm. hey look he has a week where he just goes to class and, like, time nothing, to breathe nothing yeah. really happens and then like this intense period of like you know battling or whatever dementors um, and like I'm even thinking of like Star Wars, like you, like when you have the like the the title sequence, mm-hmm. and like that that whole like prologue that's like written out, like that's all like stuff that's happened in like the downtime movies, yeah. in between the movies, and it's like everything else is like catching up to like what happened. Hmm. So I think downtime. So I'm going to transition us into number two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think downtime is really interesting because. Um, 
it isn't something that is handled the same by everyone. It's something mm-hmm. very huge. Uh, it, it can be so different um, party to party. Um, you need players that want to do things because it's very um, self-directed. It's very, they have to have the initiative to go out and do things that aren't like on the beaten path or like um, presented by the dungeon master. And the dungeon master has to be down to uh, either have random tables of costs and prices and economies uh, or be willing to improv it. Um, mm-hmm. And so you got to make sure there's the push and pull there um, because a lot of times either the dungeon master want it, but none of the players are interested or um, vice versa. It's one player might want it, but the dungeon master's like, we don't have time for that. I don't want to, I don't really care mm-hmm. about your trading mission to the other side of the continent. Um, so you got to make sure that that communication is there and that downtime um, fits into the, uh, the table you're in. That's really true because uh, like we were saying with Tomb of Annihilation or many other like 5e campaigns, it's sort of like you're on this track and like not in a railroad railroad way, um, but just in the sense of like, um, look, like we're moving through the adventure. Like each week we're just like, you can tell me what you're thinking about like um, (laughs) just planning for the future of your character and maybe like a plot beat you want to hit, but there's no time. Um, In fact, in 5e, uh, most of the downtime I've seen comes when you are between um, like campaign stories. Yeah. It's like, what do you do for like the three months that, uh, you know, between Tomb of Annihilation and when we're going to Avernus or something. And then yeah. the players just, you know, text or, or they tell me like, I want to have like invested in a business at this point. Yeah. Everything in 5e happens just like it's, it's you're, you're in a campaign or you're in a story for just like months on end. And then it's like, Oh, now you have like downtime for like a year in between like stories. It almost and seems, Oh, sorry. And there isn't like, it's just, it's a weird, like, a time system where, like, everything is all happening, like, in the same day, almost. Where it's, like, the whole the whole story of, like, your sessions, like, take, take place over, you know, a very short time period. And then, like, the downtime is just, like, very, it's, like, it's just kind of, like, sporadically thrown in at, the, at the end. Well, so, um, I mean, that's, that's a criticism of, like, individual DMs as much sure. as 5e itself. For sure. Um, but I would say it, it almost feels like... Um, like deployment in the military of like, I have to go to this place for this amount of time and then I'll be back at like seaside or wherever you are. Um, And so maybe that's more of the rhythm that a lot of campaigns will hit. hit. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Let's let's weigh in here, Jake. I I don't know. I've always um, tried to spread things out or just play long enough that the group wants to be together because deployment has this kind of aura of, Ugh, sorry, family, I gotta go back and adventure again. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, a lot of my very story-heavy games have been a group of people that found each other and really, by the end of it, you know, call themselves family. And there is this sort of, like, this is our home, this is... Um, so I don't know if I'd use that deployment analogy, but, um, yeah, I've always tried to intersperse downtime so it wasn't like David said, like there's just action, 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 and then all the downtime dumped on the end. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, what do you do for three months in between adventures? Um, I like it to be, okay, this is going to take you a week to get here. Um, what do you guys do? Or even this will take a few hours. This will take a day mm-hmm. just to not pad the stats, but like to lengthen the amount of time because it is weird when you do the math and it's like, oh my gosh, we went from level one to 20. This is amazing. How much time has passed? It's like a month? <laughs> and it's like that that's crazy so I, I want it to be and that feels more natural and good for the story yeah. um during when i was a dungeon master for um 
I guess it would be Game Master in this sense for the Star Wars, Edge of the Empire, all of those. Um, I would just say, uh, as a Dungeon Master, I would just like snap my fingers and say banter. You know, when it got kind of bored. Mm -hmm. And like the players would literally know, okay, now it's time to address um, maybe some character stuff. Maybe And like they would just start talking to each other. And they would start, you know, quipping at each other. And I was like, yes, because that made it feel like, at that time, like a Star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You have that downtime to banter and gamble and, you know, talk trash to each other um, or meditate in the force. You know, all that that sort of thing makes it feel more natural and feel like a story. So I I think 5e has done a pretty poor time um, until recently. Like the first few adventures... We're very just, okay, plow through it, action, action, action. The end of the world is happening tomorrow. There's no time to go carousing. Um, And then we'll just throw on the downtime at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really think it's good to inject it wherever you can to make it feel like a real story that that flows and has ups and downs. So one of the the most interesting things that I, I remember a character doing in downtime was we were playing in the Star Wars game. I think Will was running it at the time. And one of our friend's characters... Whenever we come across a different, like, enemy type, he would try to collect it or capture it, kind of like a Pokemon, because he wanted to start a zoo. So I just remember having a bunch of... I remember this! I I remember having a bunch of just random aliens on our ship, just like, he stowed away. Oh, I love that. At one point he was trying... venom? Yeah. And he was trying to, like, at one point, I don't remember if we did, but he was going to try to capture a Rancor for the zoo. He, he got a baby Nexu at one point, which yeah. is, like, really dangerous. I think he got his arm ripped off by a creature while yes. he was trying to capture it. Yes, he did. Wasn't he a Bothan? Yeah, no, Trandoshan. Trandoshan. Uh, okay, but that was that was my downtime story. The other... Okay, so getting back to downtime again. So this, this is kind of, like, I guess my big complaint with the lack of downtime in a lot of 5e games that I've played in is that... Week to week, like when you go in the dungeon, it just feels like uh, the next session. It's you know, it's just previously on, and it's just like you're still in the mm-hmm. dungeon, and there's no like, there's no room for your characters to breathe. Whereas in the game that Will's running in now, it's like you go in to the dungeon and then you come out on that week. You can't just like stay in there for a whole week because that's <laughs> you just would die. You would die. It's dangerous, and that feels more natural, and it feels like there's less of a time crunch, and I kind of enjoy that. So all this is to say that um, the style of campaign you run is going to determine whether or not downtime works for you. So yeah. um, I would just to put it simply, t- like ticking clocks and um, the world is going to end kind of stories. Your players are not going to want to spend a week like nope. running a business if it's like, hey, look, mm-hmm. the dragon is burning up cities every hour. Like we can't waste any time. Yeah. And I've been guilty <laughs> of running campaigns like that, even in like Savage Worlds, where it's like um, the next week you pick right up the very moment that you left off last week and it's just like go 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 and i think there's a certain level of fatigue that players get when they're like look i would love to just like not have to save the world for 10 seconds yeah um and i think that those those types of game can yeah be draining and i think that it's kind of a device that's used too frequently in in D campaigns or campaign settings where you know, there's a there's a ticking clock. You can't you can't take a moment to rest. Otherwise, you know, everything's gonna blow up or end, or mm-hmm. something terrible will happen. And I think saving those timers for important and climactic moments can make your game that much more impactful when mm-hmm. there is an actual like threat or you want to incorporate something along those lines. So leaving leaving it less 
uh, of a time crunch can make it for more uh, engagement, I guess you mm -hmm. can say, because there isn't as much pressure. So you can you can kind of invest in the world a little bit more rather than always having to like race mm -hmm. through the dungeon. Jake, you want to bring us home? Um, no, I was literally going to say the same thing. Just apocalypses uh, don't allow for downtime. And even if, like, let's say there's a zombie apocalypse scenario, like, there's still downtime even in The Walking Dead. And that's an oh, environment yeah. with constant pressure and terror and stress. Mm -hmm. uh, but even then, they have time to, like, have these dramatic scenes and start a farm and whatever. Yeah, and I think that you can have problems, but, like, as you solve them, like, you know, they're not going to be as much about pressure. Mm -hmm. Like, finding food and water, like, once you've done that, like, you'll be good for a while. Like, then you can start to worry about, like, bigger issues, like, where are you going to stay? And not have to worry about zombies killing you. I'm always worried about zombies killing me. <laughs> so I would say um, just consider t tracking time on a calendar. It just ha I mean, something basic. Just make a grid, make it have 30 days on it, and just mark off time. Um, I used to do this um, just for like traveling. It's like, hey, like you travel for a week. Like, what do you want to talk about on the road? Like, what is some interesting thing you saw while you were in a tree? Um, even if you're not strictly tracking it for like you know, t for apocalyptic reasons, but just for like, so you have an awareness of like, hey, look, you farmed for a week and like, uh, this happened. It just gives you a, a gives your world a more more of a presence and more of a. Uh, tangibility that I think is lacking from certain D&D campaigns. It's almost like setting the scene where like in movies you need to have like that establishing shot and passing time and like narrating what your character has like done mm -hmm. for like the past week kind of sets them into the world so that they feel more established and that they're actually having an impact. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for us, the team at Wizards of the Coast has created the Dungeon Master's Guide. And in Chapter 6, they have an entire section called Between Adventures. Um, and there's a section on downtime activities, which we will now discuss at length. Yeah, there are there are so many. I mean, these are just ones that are helpfully listed, but I mean, we're going to just list off uh, at least uh, 10,000. Um. <laughs> and, and even at the bottom of it, it says, hey, look, if you think of one that we didn't write down, like... Here's what it should do, yeah. and, like make you gold or make you have connections or, as you'll see, many other things. All right, so first up we have building a stronghold. Yes, mm. yes. So, like, having a home base is such an underrated part of D&D. &D. I think um, the Star Wars Edge of the Empire spoiled me because they had this ship and that was their mobile, yeah. like, mobile home base um that they made their own that they decorated that they had a pet in that they and it it was so awesome um and it took me a long time to realize that dnd is missing um something similar and something similar can be amazing to add um to dnd so anytime your players want to uh build a home base that they want to start a stronghold start a um, location that is a safe environment for everyone in the party i mean I would definitely urge you as a dungeon master to allow that and explore that because um, it can be awesome. It can be such a, a cool part of the game. There's an idea that Matt Colville had where um, he awarded the party or he awarded a player a title and land and a stronghold. And it just changed everything because now it's like, hey, I'm giving you like a starter base kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and you get to build on it. And this is like, you know, where everything happens. You have your own space. And you're right, Jake, like the spaceship idea from Star Wars is so good because 
they're called murder hobos because they're homeless. Like you think of your adventurers as just having <laughs> oh, that's no. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, they're just completely homeless. Buy a murder hobo a house, and they'll be the greatest player in the world. Now he's a, a murder. Um, he's a murder homeowner? CEO now. <laughs> but I mean, like you're not going to murder people in the town that you're living in. Otherwise, you're not going to have your house for very See? long. We're yeah. gentrifying the murder hobos out of here, man. <laughs> it's a uh, a mob with torches and pitchforks coming to get you oh <laughs> no yeah I, I think um and we've recommended this in our review of matt colville's strongholds and followers um it adds just a whole nother level where there's you know a few pages in the dungeon master's guide um because you know they can't go in depth about everything they, they lose a lot of the specificity that a stronghold can have especially when you think of a stronghold as not a castle, but it can be a thieves' guild or a bar or a wizard's mm-hmm. tower or mm-hmm. a uh, pirate ship. Like, all of these options can work as a home base. It doesn't have to be, like, a literal thing, stronghold fortification. It can be anything. It can be a treehouse. It can be, um, you know, so many things. It's super broad. I just love the idea of having a pirate ship, but that's just because it's virtually the same thing as the Star Wars ship. Maybe it's <laughs> yeah. a wagon. Well, especially having mobile the mobility. Um, I knew, uh, I I heard of a group that had a large bag of holding that was like a box, basically. Um, and you open it up and there's just a ladder oh as so you crawl in and the inside of their uh, bag of holding was basically like a small apartment. And so they would just have one person <laughs> wear the bag of holding and stand guard. With everyone in the bag sleeping. That's really uh, cool. Yeah, and so it worked as kind of this mobile um, stuff. But all sorts of hijinks ensued when, like, um, if you uh, go underwater for too long, like, the bag will fill up. The bag of holding will fill up and your apartment will essentially flood. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways of having, um, with magic, having um, a mobile uh, system that is your home base. It doesn't have to be like brick and mortar. Yeah. I love that. And and maybe in this case, instead of like getting bricks and building a building, you're like finding a mage to enchant your bag with additional space or something. Yeah. 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 We're adding an extra pouch for, you know, a different room. <laughs> right. Next up, we have carousing. Jake, yes. what is carousing? Carousing is uh, getting wild, getting down with downtime. <laughs> Um, This is going to a bar, getting in fights, getting drunk, uh, going to brothels, all the sorts of things that uh, you think of a a young Conan the Barbarian would be doing uh, when he is not killing large creatures. So it's Um, partying. Yes. This is essentially partying. Um, And so it's it's really fun to see players do this. because a lot of times you think of like downtime, like they'll be okay, I train for ten hours um uh to, to get something. Um and they can easily say that because they don't have to endure the suffering mm-hmm. of that that training. But with carousing, it's the opposite. They're like, Yeah, let's go get drunk, even though you may not be drinking outside of the game. Um, you're not feeling the effects or dealing with any of the the pleasures that you might um, uh, achieve while carousing. Um, but you still want to do it. The players you'll always see when they enter a new town, they'll be like, let's go to the bar. You know, it's, it's just it's just fun. And the DMG provides some, uh, well, it's a pretty small D100 table of, after a night of partying, uh, what happened to you? And things may include getting robbed, getting into a love affair, or uh, winning a f- small fortune gambling. Oh, 
You love to see it. Yeah, there's, there's so much you can do. Um, I think this is a very um, important part of the social aspect of games. Um, when you enter a new town, um, unless your players are incredibly boring and just want to go uh, maybe sleep on the outskirts, most of the time they're going to want to go to the bar or the brothel or whatever, whatever seedy underbelly of the city there is. Um, and that that's an amazing time for role-playing, getting new characters, introducing... Uh, new NPCs, new villains. Oh, it's just a great, enjoyable part of D&D. That is common downtime partying. Uh, you got any comments on carousing, David? I'd love to do it. <laughs> He's carousing <laughs> right now. I'm not, I'm not uh, talking about a game. I'm talking about real life. <laughs> <laughs> carousing is not used enough as a word in real life. I agree. You know what? I'm uh, carousing. That's that's my hobby. I'm, I'm caroused right now. <laughs> uh, carousal. <laughs> carousal. Uh, it's pronounced carousel. <laughs> well, that'd be a good downtime thing. Oh, I just ride the carousel for one week. <laughs> for what? I, I get off that's and immediately horrible. die. <laughs> yeah. that, that's hell. That's like a horror thing. Yeah. yeah like you just change to carousel. I'm imagining the music for like for days. weeks. Ooh. It's oh. funny how like something delightful taken in large doses is now a horror film. Oh yeah, there was there was an ask credit thing. It's like what's something that's not scary but super scary at night, um, and the best one was an ice cream truck. Oh, because yeah. like it's not scary in the day, but at nighttime hearing an ice cream truck. It's like, yeah, you don't you don't want that. You you hate to see it. Or <laughs> clowns during the day. Great at night. There was a, a thing on Reddit where they uh, it was in Russia. And there's a bunch of snow, and they made a snowman, but they it was like they sculpted it, and they made it on a swing, oh. and they and they like painted his face, and so it looks like a guy just sitting on the swing. It's just snow, yeah. and then that's he, cool. And he just like swings and he has a balloon and stuff. <laughs> All right, next up we have creating a magic item, and I honestly didn't know this optional rule existed where um, you spend some gold and you're able to create magic items, and they get real it- expensive. Yes, this is something, it's it's very good to keep this expensive because um, magic items are something that can really tip the balance of the game. Um, uh, and so your players are obviously going to want to get their hands on as many of them as possible. So be sparing with how much magic items you give out in general, um, but giving your players the ability to create these magic items... Uh, Make it difficult. Make it a cool thing to be achieved over a long period of time. That maybe requires exotic materials from across the continent. Don't make it something where, oh, you can make a rod of blasting for 100 gold because suddenly your players are going to be selling rods of blasting to everyone in the city. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So really make sure you know um, the economy of your worlds um, and just kind of the economy of... uh, like, like for me personally, I use the beer standard. So I go one gold is the price of just a, a single uh, thing of beer. And so because of that, I can kind of triangulate out like, okay, how many, you know, cups of beer is this worth? Um, and it, it really, it's very crude. It's very rough. A lot of my, I do not have tables and tables like you guys do. Um, but it, it at least gives me a standard in the world that I can kind of like um, – understand what the economy is like mm-hmm. um you want to be careful with giving crazy stuff like this yeah this is interesting because um first of all how cool is it that all these years later i'm still finding new things in the dmg that's oh me. yeah it's so dense so right here um in order to craft any magic item you have to be a minimum of third level um 
but you can't even craft rare quality items until 6th level. Very rare at 11th and legendary at 17th. It's only 5,000 gold for a rare item? That's not it's that bad. It's not that bad. But I can, I what else do you going to spend your gold on, David? Carousing. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 6,000 gold carousing. That's I'm quite carousing. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I think um, this works especially well with, with, like I said, having a a, a magic item to work towards, mm-hmm. um, or you know maybe if they're an artificer they can make a a lot more. But I'm trying to think of how much I would allow this truly. Um, I'd make it pretty hard. Well, if you're uh, using time, you can also just make it take a darn long time. That's true. Time and money. Um, next we have gaining renown, which is, this is, um, basically it makes you have a better reputation with a faction or organization in the world. So think of this as, uh, like in Skyrim, like doing side quests for the fighters guild or something. Um, so this could be a text message thing you do with some dice rolling, or it could be part of the session. Like in the beginning, you're like, Hey, look, I'm going to pursue this and I need my party with me to go like root out this goblin cave. Yeah. To make this faction like me. Yeah. I think it's um, in Waterdeep Dragon Heist, um, it, it was really nice. I think each of the factions, I think there's about five factions total. Each of the factions in the city had three to five um, simple quests that would raise your renown. Um, and you don't even necessarily have to count renown as some weird type of of charisma currency Mm -hmm. um you can just kind of have your standing with them in your head that's what i personally do um and but but you want to have various ways various um tasks that need done um in order for them to gain renown with certain factions and this could be a great way of allowing the players to shape um the direction of the campaign even during downtime because Mm -hmm. a party that is really wanting to help out the order of the gauntlet and all the paladins and clerics and that church is going to be a much different party than the the one that immediately wants to go carousing get in good with the thieves guild and start doing petty crime um those are those are two different parties and the player that the dungeon master didn't enforce anything there was no campaign storytelling way the players just got to shape the story drastically by who they decide to essentially team up with. Yeah, and that's really cool because it's... Um, I, so some time ago I tried to systematize a bunch of downtime because I, I hated the amount of time wasted in town before the adventure. And so I told all the players, like, you have three actions in town. What would you like to do? And everybody went around and they said, I'm going to uh, do this and that and this. And um, it worked pretty well because it was like this, the major's like, I'm going to prepare my spells, I'm going to go shopping, and I'm going to like do this other thing. And so if you're choosing off this list from the DMG of like, I want to like craft a magic item, gain renown, and like, I don't know, sow rumors, which is something that we'll talk about pretty soon. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think last thing on factions for me is just um, making sure, like if you're a dungeon master, make sure you have stuff for them to do. It's just going to be awkward if you're like, I want to seek out the town guard and, and I want to join them and help them however I can, you know, prepare defenses for the coming apocalypse, whatever. Have stuff for them to do. Be like, oh, yeah, we need someone to cover this post tomorrow. Or, oh, yes, we need you to go retrieve some of this from here. Um, have some of that ready um, because it's kind of awkward if they go up to the town guard and the guard captain's like, uh, we're doing pretty good right now. I mean, we're fine, I think. <laughs> you want to make sure there, there's stuff to do. stuff Ways that they can increase their renown if they want to. I like that a lot. Just uh, It's almost like... 
this goes into some world building of like you have to have the faction set out and you and like the goals of that faction mm-hmm. um like what are they trying to accomplish because if it's like the uh the mafia they have very different goals than the town guard than yeah. an adventuring guild and so on yeah all right um next is performing sacred rites which this one i feel is very um niche in the sense underutilized of- well, yes, but it says specifically like a pious character can um, perform sacred rites for a temple affiliated with their god, um, which includes funerals, weddings, ordinations. Um, but have you seen the benefit of it? A character who spends at least 10 days performing sacred rites gains inspiration at the start of each day for the next 2d6 days. That's cool. See, you, you have the... to give rewards. The, the, the... There's a reason that divine, pious uh, clerics or any characters are are more are, are more rare is because the dungeon master doesn't reward prayer um and, and devotion as much as they should that's my yeah, hot take i agree totally agree there's a fear i know that some players have based on the um the questions we've gotten from our listeners of like specifically they're afraid of jake doing this where it's like oh you st- stepped one toe out of line outside of like your orders um orders and suddenly i took away all of your powers you have no clerical yeah. spells mm-hmm. um but and yet, so it's like you're you're punished very harshly in theory for stepping out of line, but you're not rewarded enough for stepping in line all the time, yeah. or do yeah. going out of your way to go above I, and beyond for your you know exactly. That this is something that should be really important um, for players and dungeon masters when they're they're making a cleric or especially a warlock is yeah that patron deity relationship with the the characters because um, yeah there are some characters who are like. I made a deal with the devil and I, he's going to give me immense power. And he does, you know, maybe the devil's giving all sorts of stuff. I just found a ton of tables for that in the new uh, Avernus mm. descent to Avernus. There's so many like devil contracts of stuff. Like, like there's one where you just gain the lucky feet. What? Like it just gives it to you. Yeah. That's amazing. So cool. But, but the downsides are immense. Right. And so that's why I think if you want to have a deity like that, that's like, Hey, I want you to do this big thing. Give them big rewards, and to be that that relationship that makes it worth it to have that relationship. Um, and oh, so so I think sacred rites, rituals, that sort of thing um, can be can be really cool, especially if it's it's kind of complex involved in the character. Maybe the the warlock's patron say, "I want you to sacrifice this in your home base," uh, but no one else could know about it. Like that would be a fun secret side quest, <laughs> or even like. Imagine you are like in a dungeon. You find you know a trash temple, and during your downtime, you spend the time to restore it. Oh yeah, and that's like, a huge deal. Like, what kind yes. of benefit would you get from that? Like, and that's and those are things that you can look into, and that's something that, that you definitely probably get some sort of like yeah. holy benefit. If like not cons- a consecrating, yeah, yeah <laughs> consecrating uh, desecrated ground, yeah, or yeah. desecrating um, a unholy <laughs> shrine, yeah. Does that mean consecrate? I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so these are underutilized, but I, I would say find ways to, um, you know, even little things. Think of like a statue in the woods. Um, like if one of the players gets a high enough check, maybe they realize like oh, it looks like it could use be cleaned up. And if they clean up the statue of like maybe some long uh, ancient god, like maybe give them a little bonus. Like, I don't know. Hmm. I think even this can be integrated. Yes, yes. These can be integrated because um, I think it's underrated. Well, there was a, there was one thing in uh, the game that I'm playing in right now, Will's game, where uh, we found 
like all of the, the 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 statues in the temple had their heads have been replaced, and we found one of the statue heads and we put it back. And it gave one of the players a buff. For just like yeah, 24 for, hours. For 24 hours. That's cool. It, for, just for restoring like that. that stuff, which and, is really yeah. cool. In 5e, you could easily say like, hey, look, you have the benefit of this feat for the next 24 hours of the game. Yeah. Or yeah. just for the rest of the session. Like, that's really cool. Like, yeah, look, you have sure. lucky now for the rest of the session. Oh, so cool. Yep. Yeah. Easy. That's easy. That's fine. Yep. Oh, All right. Moving right Let's, along. Let's get into the business side of things. Let's get down um, to business. Jake, can you say um, let's get down to business? To defeat the Huns? No. <laughs> for the segue. All right. Let's get down to business. Um, running, <laughs> a business uh, can, can be a huge part of downtime. Um, this is one that's pretty popular, I think, because players want to get that money. Especially that passive income where mm-hmm. they can be out adventuring and their underlings are making the money. They want to be financially free so that they don't have to worry about going on adventures and paying for them. Interesting. Oh my gosh. I, I'm thinking of different characters. Like my character would be like, no, I don't want to be free from that. I want better weapons to be better at that. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to run a business when I could be running my sword through the enemy? <laughs> This so this is something that um really depends on how in depth you want. I, I managed to run a one through twenty campaign where um the business was basically me improving. Um there were some things that I checked converted into the beer standard um by reverse engineering the rules to see how much beer costs in normal five E. <laughs> and then applying that to the actual numbers in the book. Sounds like a lot um, of work. Oh no, it was not. It was one math. Um <laughs> One but, uh, math. <laughs> math. Oh, one math, please. But like you want to want to be committed to this, um, and this is something where I am on a different level than Will, as in lower level, because <laughs> um, you guys, Will and David, are doing some something with random tables that um, just makes my head spin. Um, <laughs> so how how deep do you guys like? How deep do you get in it? Are you you know rolling for the economy every day or well, how, absolutely not? Okay. No, my game is designed to be minimal, so it's a lot of pre-made tables, um, okay. and very little thinking is involved. So it doesn't think of it as like it isn't rendered until it's asked about. <laughs> so yeah. like if you're trying to sell something, the price won't be you know determined until you need to sell it. Uh, uh, as far as running a business, uh, very simply in my game, you get a three percent return on your investment every month. So if you invest a thousand gold, then at the end of the month you would get back thirty. Is that right? Is that the math? Ten percent yep. is three hundred. Oh, three hundred. You're right. Okay, my math. Or three percent is no. That was 30, right. Thirty gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. then, if you reinvest that, then obviously you can have a lot more passive income yeah. all the time. Compound interest. That's, that's all you do. Um, and so it's low and slow. And actually, on this table here in, in the DMG, it's also very low. And I don't know about slow, but like, look, the best you can get is you don't cover maintenance cost, and you earn a profit of three d ten times five gold. Like, that's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. And I think you can find better tables for 5e that fans have made that make running a business something more uh, lucrative. Um, however, in a 5e game, like just with the style of game, I'm less interested in this um, because there's definitely a bang for your buck or return on, on investment issue yep. that I would, I'd be more interested in chasing down. I think no. so. One of my players started a business, um, basically smuggling things, um, and I made it pretty high risk, high rewards. So he he made a lot more money than he probably should. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also so he was smuggling him, uh, smuggling in fire salts, 
um, which is basically D and D version of gunpowder. Uh huh. Um, That's cool. And so uh, one one day they just heard a huge explosion from the harbor of Waterdeep, and <sighs> it was his boat. <laughs> um, and there had been assassins who had got on and just you know lit a fuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, I tend to run businesses high risk, high reward. Um, or you can do businesses. Um, I love your guys' way too. This is the three percent, just solid, slow, low and slow income. Mm-hmm. I think those two extremes are better to do than the middle, where the economy is fluctuating. I think there should be a low and slow, or like high risk, high reward, like smuggling operation. Um, because getting into the weeds, the weeds are in the middle, in my mm-hmm. opinion. That's where you know the economy is changing every day. You're having to, uh, yeah, yeah, really roll on a million tables. So I think both ways that we're talking about on the extremes tend to be the the less less fuss, less mess way. Yeah. And I think that what you're doing is uh, you're always looking for ways, Jake, to um, insert like fun story twists into downtime to make mm-hmm. the downtime more like a real adventure, like a proper thing. Yes. Uh, whereas what we're doing in our game is more about like what what's some more an, an additional way for me to make money this week like until we go back to the dungeon and yeah and which in this case is usually a pretty slow and predictable um thing and i don't know anybody who is rolling on tables to simulate the economy each week that sounds like a burden that i would rather not bear for sure for sure yeah i guess my my whole thing with downtime is just i want um my philosophy is like I, like in a movie, even downtime for characters is shown in a way that is still engrossing, like mm-hmm. a montage or, you know, a training sequence. Like those things yeah. are yeah. done in a way that people still want to pay attention, even though like huge plot beats aren't happening. No, I'm thinking of like Indiana Jones riding on a Zeppelin and like <laughs> still stuff is happening. He's just like traveling and like, oh, yeah. like excitement. There's a, there's, there's a gag in community where, uh, one of the episodes, like a character is like doing like mundane things, and they're like, "You don't have to make a story out of it." And he's like going through a montage of like doing things. Oh, it's like, yeah. I'm like writing it emails, so, and he's it like, "So meta," and it gets very meta. But it's like it it kind of like makes it more interesting when you do like kind of add that small flavor into things. Mm-hmm. All right, business, more business is selling magic items. Mm-hmm. All right, I got questions about this, Jake. Yeah. Have, have your players ever tried to sell magic items? So, uh, a few. Not often, though, because um, I my rules are a little different. I do not have attunement rules. What? So my players can have, you know, a dozen magic items. Whoa. And you say, I'm yeah. crazy. That's <laughs> actually um, nuts. So because of that, um, no. I mean... I, I've had a few sell some things, um, but most of them were given to allies or NPCs or their uh, children um, in ways that made more sense story-wise than, you know, going to a, um, you know, they sell a ton of other things. But magic items specifically, because of my attunement rule, they tend to just divvy them up to whoever needs them Hmm. in their group. Interesting. Uh, David? I mean, I've never gone out of my way to sell one, but I'd be open to it if I found one I didn't want or didn't use. So so this is something that really I think is like a huge – let me try to sort my thoughts out. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think because my game is so story-driven, all that stuff, 
um, the magic items that I give to them are so tailored for at least one of them that I can't imagine them selling it. And I'm thinking if I wanted to make my game realistic, I would give them an amazing staff of the Archdruid that uh, requires attunement by a druid. (laughs) And then just be like, oh, like none of you guys can use that, so you're kind of forced to sell it. Um, Because that would be realistic, you know, is they'd find something that none of them can use. (laughs) But, like, that would... I'm trying to think. That's a real kind of flaw of my game, maybe, is that I've never... All the magic items Everything is so, like, tailored. meticulously tailored that you can't, yeah. like... There's no random, like, oh, I found something and it's super powerful, but, like, I can't use it. I can't use it. And I that's almost, like, spell. kind of an interesting thing because if I know, you sell it to the about. wrong person, like, imagine, like, selling a staff of the Archdruid to the wrong druid. To like an ecoterrorist. <laughs> oh no! And they use it to I like. I love it. So like maybe that is something I speak that you for should. The trees. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. I, I want to get in my. Maybe new you should incorporate that, that more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of. Um, I'll, I'll be using a lot more random tables in general, but um, yeah, I don't know. I I love magic items so much. I love being like, all right, open up your presents, children. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, it, the excitement is there for me, too. And it's just kind of weird to be like, all right, you get a wizard's wand, and they're, like, all fighters. They're like, okay, I guess we'll sell it. So it would, you ever, would you ever use uh, random magic items? Uh, I th- I'm i thinking more about it. I think I I will. Um, they'll, they'll probably be at least in it, you know, if there's a big pile of loot, at least one of the items will be one that, like, kind of tailor-made for at least one of them. Um, but I want to incorporate more random um, tables so it feels more real um yeah i'm excited for that i remember um i think actually in all the 5e games that i've run um i always find an excuse to roll on a random like a common magic item table and the, you know the stuff on there is not gonna blow your socks off it's gonna be like potions and scrolls and sometimes like a bag of holding or something um right isn't that on the common item list yeah i've gotten a lot of like miscellaneous scrolls that i'm like well, I can't wait to find a use for this. And, and no, that's something I like. Fun. Well, because I remember um, you getting a scroll of some weird spell that I don't even couldn't even think of, and you fought a hag, and you like used it on her, and it was the only chance your party had of like getting to beat her. Oh yeah, we were all gonna die, but then somehow I had that scroll. I forget what it was. And, and I like that feeling of like giving players just <laughs> like dumping a bag of assorted tools on them, and like figure yeah. out how to make use of it, and they do. That's fun. Yeah. yeah. But, but then there's a lot to be said about, like, getting that tailored, like, Christmas morning experience. Like, it's exactly what I wanted. But if you get all of that all the time, it's not as much fun. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And I, I want to integrate a sort of balance because I really realized I was like, no, my players have never sold a magic item. And I'm like, yeah, because I made them all custom made for them. Hmm. Um, so some, sometimes, interesting. sometimes you wake up on Christmas morning and you get socks and you don't want them, but you need them. You so. need them. <laughs> Darn it, you need them. <laughs> oh, man, that's interesting. Um, but selling magic items, same thing with running a business. You want to have some um, some rules set in place and kind of understand how the economy works. Um, because if you do something, like you say, okay, this magic item, you get this price for it. Your players will do the math better than you will a lot of the times, mm-hmm. and they'll find ways to exploit what the price was. And then you'll have to be kind of annoying and, and say, oh, the price is more expensive now. So, sorry, that, you know, just to kind of uh, patch the game <laughs> because you made a mistake with pricing. So you really want to um, kind of just at least have a rudimentary uh, knowledge of, 
your just the, how much things cost um, so you can get accurate prices that, that won't need to be changed later. So I also think that you have to think about finding people who have the wealth to buy something like a magic item. Your mom and pop shop isn't going to have the, the resources to invest in buying a big magic item. Like you're gonna need to find a very specific buyer, and that's gonna take time. Yeah, that could be a trying to sell a quest of its own. Yeah, yeah, selling an artifact would be its own quest because you know if you probably showed it to the authorities, they'd probably just confiscate it from you, and so you'd have to take it to like some crime lord that's you know probably wealthy (laughs) enough, but also dangerous enough. Can you imagine like? That's equivalent to a person saying, I have a nuclear bomb I'm willing to sell. Yes, right? yes. The situations you are now in take That's over the cool. campaign. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really like I'm trying to imagine. Like imagine someone – like right now, it would just like – I snap my fingers and in the room with you guys is a nuclear warhead and the Mona Lisa. Oh. And it's it's like how do you profit from that? Like that would be so hard. It seems like a pretty interesting um, either a writing prompt or just a problem-solving yeah. scenario of, like, how do you sell the Mona Lisa right now? Yeah. <laughs> That's so And get the most money yeah. for it. Well, no, so, so once you're talking high-level magic items, it's, it's similar to that. You're you're dealing in enriched uranium and, and fine art at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says here that to sell a very rare, not even a wondrous or artifact-level item, the base price is 50,000 gold. Like, who has 50,000 gold? Wow. So you're dealing with nobles, probably. I think that's the amount of gold that was in the vault in Dragon Heist. No, that was 500,000. Oh, 500,000. So, yeah, a tenth of the gold and... That's a lot of gold. All right. um, We're getting down to the end here of the DMG suggestions. The next one is, I think, very funny. Uh, It's called Sewing Rumors. Oh, this is good. This is good. Um... This is something, I mean, information is such a powerful tool in the real world. Um, it only makes sense to translate that into the verisimilitude of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, so sowing rumors is something that I have utilized later on in my campaign. And it's been really fun to to see what the players want and like who they want to slander, who they want to benefit, um, how the newspaper works. I guess for me, because my uh, timeline, like I'm more kind of, you know, Renaissance on the edge of the Industrial Revolution. Um, there's there's a lot more information pathways that they can alter. Um, but yeah, this is something that's that's underrated, but can really give you a leg up, can make you some friends, and make you some enemies too. I love the idea of selling rumors because it it adds that political level to the game, which your characters can influence and kind of manipulate on their own level, where. Maybe you want to overthrow a king, but, you know, you're not going to be able to do it with just you guys. So you start sawing rumors and that's, you know, that that's the, that's one way to get the party started. Let's just put it that way. Yes. It's interesting, like, how much time it takes, according to this table, to sow a rumor. So um, a village, for instance, is 2d6 days, days, an average of, what, 7 or 8. Um, I, I've had this exact scenario where there's a, maybe maybe Jake told me about this, where the party was traveling and there was a bard and they would go into the town a few days before they arrived and talk up the party. And then when the party arrives, everybody's like, hey, like these people oh, are like yeah. pretty cool. But like it takes a minimum of a week usually to even get people to pay attention to that according to these rules. Yeah, I would I would alter those with, you know, whatever performance check the bard did or whatever. True. Um, it, there, there's ways to, to change it. But I, I think... Yeah, utilizing information 
and even lies because rumors it doesn't imply you know propaganda this is like you can go make up stuff about you know the town guard or uh whatever limitless my mind is is paralyzed with how many options (laughs) there are with you know making up lies about people or just getting information out into the world that someone might not want revealed oh there's a bunch you can do uh this last one i think will be controversial um and it, it doesn't do what it sounds like it does it's called training to gain levels and the core idea is that instead of getting enough experience or crossing that milestone threshold and then just popping up a level you actually have to go back to town and spend time like uh from to go from uh, second through fourth level to increase it takes 10 days and 20 gold i think per day is that right or just 20 gold base anyway it costs money and time to level up so it's uh, the same way skyrim has you go find a bed and rest before you can actually get the benefits of of a level up yeah i love that uh, i'm I, actually like kind of into that like normally i'd be against it but it builds downtime into your game it now. builds it into your downtime yeah. and the idea of just like, I guess playing with gold for XP, like, this is kind of the, the next iteration of that, where you have to spend gold and you have to spend time to really advance in the game. And it's kind of an interesting idea, and I'd, I'd be down to try it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd go all out, but I like the idea of you not leveling up until the next long rest. Yeah, um, at least that. Yeah. Because I also like the idea of... Um, have you guys ever had players explain their training session to you, like what they're working on? Yes, actually. It's actually awesome, like to yeah. hear them like go into detail. And so describing, like having your players describe how they level up is really interesting because they can go and kind of take the lessons learned. You know, the perfect player might do this. You know, take the lessons learned from, you know, when they went down that level, um, how they killed something, and kind of like use that into like kind of narrativizing how you level up. That could be awesome, the more I'm thinking about it. It could. Even if it's just a montage of saying, like like you said, a long rest. Um, yeah. Of, like, how do you spend your time? And I'm seeing wizards, like, studying books and buying spells. Or yeah. fighters, like, in a dojo, just, like, learning new techniques. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then, like, talking to their master or something. And if you're explaining yeah. class features, like, the Eldritch Knight is, like, up on a frosty mountain meeting with his shadowy master. <laughs> like, that's, Yeah. And just like living in time where they have to like go do something to level up. Like that's kind of cool. It's just a really simple change to the rules. It, um, it doesn't have to impact your game very much. Um, and yet I think the benefits in terms of role-playing flavor are exponential. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think I kind of automatically do this with kind of how I give milestone XP or uh, milestone leveling. Um and, but I, I like the idea of like, all right, you hit it now, you just got to find a way to rest. Mm-hmm. And just kind of the overall frustration of maybe you're like running from zombies or like in this terrible chase um, and you're like, gosh, I wish I could level up. Like I wish I could snap my fingers and be the next level. But it, it adds it adds to it. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. This is a weird idea, but like what if there was there was a chance to level up? So it's like you have to go do something and depending upon like how much effort you put into like describing it, like you have a better chance to level up. Oh my god, I could see that frustrating people so much. Huh. Like, so it's like you're like, like a wizard like going and they're like, oh, I gotta go study in a tower. Mm. Oh, so I've done that for... Like, I've done that for... We'll talk about it later for uh, wizard spells. Um, mm. I like them rolling Arcana for that. Oh, okay. But, yeah, that's cool. Um, well, let should we go into the next one? Uh, yes. So uh, these are... We're now out of the DMG and these are just ideas we had. 
Um, this one, I play with this a lot actually in 5e of modifying the rate of healing that um, that is achieved in the game. And there's already some variant rules in the DMG about adjusting that and slowing it down or speeding it up or whatever. Um, but this downtime activity is called recuperating. And you imagine that you had a grievous injury during a battle and you make it take longer to heal. Like maybe magical healing doesn't cut it and you have to just spend time uh, getting bed rest and sipping broth. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like this. Uh, I've integrated some of this and I plan to a lot more to my next campaign. Um, is like grievous injuries that are so bad that like you can't just take a long rest. Um, and so they will heal, but it'll take quite a bit of time. And mm -hmm. that, that changes yeah. things a lot. If uh, someone's limping and they're like, okay, we got to get into this room so we can take a long rest and heal up. The idea of, no, when you guys come out of that room, he's still going to be limping. Mm -hmm. um, is something that like makes, it adds a level of threat, um, of danger that can be really, um, really challenging, but really rewarding um, too, if you can make it over those injuries. Um, one alternate way I've done it is some injuries require um, a medicine check before a healing roll. So if someone breaks their arm, you know, just get to smash by an ogre, um, like someone has to set the bone with the medicine check mm. before healing um, or else it could heal wrong and it could be a permanent um, in, or longer term injury. That's cool because um, we uncovered this, I think, when we were doing some spell episodes where it seems that magical healing in this game just accelerates natural healing. Yeah, it just raised, yeah. Along the path it was already going down. So you yes. definitely could heal a bone incorrectly. Or if yes. the bone isn't even heal in when you heal it. Oh, can you yeah. imagine? I always oh, remember man. ABC. A bone coming out of the skin is always bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I like some of the grievous injury tables and stuff. Um, they can be utilized to, yeah, if someone um, if someone gets a crit on you, like oh crap, you're gonna have to roll to get a grievous injury, um, and and so yeah, it makes healing not just this kind of cleric um, snap the fingers and save everyone. It, it makes it so it's it. And the main thing I love about it is it makes the medicine check worth something. Yeah, because imagine having a skill called medicine. In a world where magic healing exists, it yeah. just is underused. Um, and so forcing a medicine check to like make sure bones heal right um, before healing spells or as you're doing the healing spell really adds a lot to it. makes it more dangerous and more fun. Yeah, I agree with that. And just uh, tinker with your, your healing and your mileage may vary. Yeah. Um, another rule I found for recuperation is like... Um, uh, exhaustion taking several days to uh, mm. to recover from as opposed to just like okay we're exhausted we got to take a nap um, or even sleep for eight hours like some exhaustion is so bad it takes um, a lot longer hmm. and that, that's that can slow a campaign's pace um, if if you're into that, if you're that. <laughs> <laughs> um so in general other other tips um, spending money. There is a huge complaint, especially with 5e, that you get this money and there's not much to do with it. Downtime is where you do stuff with it. Um, you want to have a lot of stuff available for players. Um, so they enter a city and there's a bunch of stuff to do. There could be a uh, traveling uh, circus. There could be um, a theater they could want to go to. A casino. There could be gambling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, give players opportunities to spend their money because that is a big complaint among players is they're just sitting on piles of gold that, you know, 
Unless they can get more armor, they're just kind of like, all right, I'll just sit on this pile of gold longer. Make them uh, carouse. <laughs> add, add, add things for them to Force carousal carouse upon them. <laughs> oh. um, another thing to spend your money on is practicing a profession. Maybe you have your players start, a, if not a business, um, they're learning a skill like blacksmithing, um, alchemy, um, Maybe you let them invest to get skill proficiencies uh, over time. You or a feat. Or a feat. Like, just give them something um, and, and tie it into a profession. Like, we have brewer's tools and yeah. uh, alchemy tools, scribing supplies. Um, I would try to find a way to make them do something. Yeah, definitely. There's, especially in um, when you have a home base, there's a lot more options for this. Uh, maybe starting a smithy out of it. Uh, maybe learning to cook in a way that could give bonuses down the line. Maybe tending to a garden, creating a library. Um, all of these things have um, a lot of of options that can add flavor to your home base and also add to your character's repertoire of skills and um, and stuff they can do. Hmm. Um, along that line, you mentioned training a skill. That's that's another thing. Um, you want to be careful with this. I've kind of had players where one time they were like, they wanted to get some skill up. So they were like reading this, this book on it that they paid a bunch for every night. And eventually I gave them a, I think just plus one intelligence. Um, wow. They were working on, but they did it for a long time. But then as soon as that happened, this was way earlier in my dungeon mastering career. As soon as I did that, all the other players, every downtime were like, okay, I want to get my strength up. I want to just punch a tree until my strength improves. I'll do it. I'll do it all day. I'll do it for days. I'll do it for weeks. You know, like, and, and then I was like, oh, okay, I got to be much more, uh, I, I can't be that lenient about giving away hard flat stats because, um, players i mean it's like diamonds you just to them. punch a tree until you have like plus five <laughs> well it's yeah it's it's grinding and, and players are everyone's so used to video games that they go okay grinding get to get that stat up like okay what's my option how do i do it and your brain almost goes into autopilot like looking to grind because we're so used to video games yeah um and so you don't want training to be this kind of boring grind you want it to be in character, you want it to be a good story beat. Um, you want it to make sense with the character. All these things. Um, and be careful about what you reward players because all the other players will seek the same thing if you give give up, if you give a mouse a cookie. It's so true. that um, <laughs> the, the line between a good rule and, <laughs> and a rule that can be abused is um, <laughs> razor, razor thin. Razor thin. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, oh, another one is, um, and actually you can find rules for this in Strongholds and Followers, which we recommend on the show, researching new spells or modifying existing spells. Oh, very interesting, very interesting subsystem of the game. Yes, this is something that's so fun and it seems so obvious. Like, I think I was doing this from the beginning, like having my players um, research new spells, um, and not even research. They were just like, hey, can I do this? Can I turn my acid splash into lava? So the cantrip is just lava instead of acid, and it adds, you know, some little tiny, you know, just fire damage instead. Or, um, And and it's, like, amazing, because it's like they're not changing any of the... Um, they're really just changing the aesthetics of the spell, mm-hmm. and it, they feel so much more engrossed in, in their character because it feels like they got to create a part of it. Um, they aren't just using this weird... 
Um, when you think about spells and magic, like it's weird that there are so many that are just kind of laid out there um, in such, you know, like Bigby's hands or uh, <laughs> minor illusion. Like there's, it depends on your game world. Um, but I think a lot of dungeon masters would be better off if they allowed their players to experiment a little more um, and create some new spells. Let the players be creative with what they want to do. I have a story I want to talk about real quick. Speaking of modifying spells, I heard this um, in a book called Playing at the World. It's the total history of D&D. Oh, I read that whole book. An exhaustive history, uh, extremely yeah. well-researched and cited. Um, and it was about the creation of the Cone of Cold spell. Um, <laughs> yeah. What happened is that it was uh, Gary was playing with one of his sons. I think it was Ernie... Or I, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But uh, he used a fireball to clear a room of enemies. And there was a bunch of scrolls of papers. And the fireball burned all of them up. And so he, he didn't get the loot, the treasure from the room. And he oh. was pissed about it. And this is like, this kid is, I think, <laughs> around 10 years old. And so he made a spell called Cone of Cold. It's exactly the same as fireball, but it just blasts ice. It doesn't destroy stuff. And, it, <laughs> and I'm like, what a great like problem to solve. Like with the yes. Spell. I'm destroying yes. all the treasure that I found. Yeah. But, but even going off that, it's so weird to think that like now Fireball and Cone of Colds are like these set in stone spells that like no one feels like they can split off from or alter in any way because it's part of the, the spell canon of, mm-hmm. of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. But it's like, that's not. That was just some kid being like, <laughs> I want to change. Like, do that too. You guys have just as, as much of a right as... As anyone to create an add-on to this game, maybe you um, want to make a cone of acid to like burn through things. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, be a little more creative than David. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> what about a cone um, of zombies? But, yeah, and I love I love the idea of uh, adding your name to it. You know, like if your your character's name is Varen, you know, it's like okay, I now it's uh, Varen's mysterious. Uh, uh, orb of fire or whatever mm-hmm. um it can be really cool to have like see your your character your, your players characters become part of your worlds in like a permanent way in like a, a known spell mm-hmm. i love it love to see it <clears throat> this one um i've been encouraging my players to do and one of them kind of took me up on it the idea of having a family in the game and this doesn't work if, if your campaign duration is very short and taking place over months. But if something is taking place over years, you can get married and have a family and have that child grow. And then maybe even have that child be a character later on. Like right. you have this, this ancestry, this, um, what's it called? Legacy type of uh, gameplay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, th- I think family, we've talked about it a lot on the show, just like underrated um, players are oftentimes scared to have families. They're often this, uh, what was it, shadow orphan? Yeah. Uh, where they, they don't have a family, but um, forcing your players to um, have to deal with relationships, uh, maybe not even with family, with friends, with um, mentors, with teachers, with, um, you know, old friends, managing those can be really interesting, you know, especially if they live with you in your stronghold. Um, there can be a lot of drama that unfolds. Um, utilizing that um, and building those relationships during downtime is, is super, c- can be super awesome. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, it's an underrated part of the game where uh, just, I don't know, having people in your life that are, you know, 
antagonistic without being real antagonists yeah yeah and then they feel more tangible because you're always seeing them um and and something that we haven't mentioned is um just interacting with the other players um downtime can provide i like to call them campfire moments Mm -hmm. where you're all surrounding you know a fire um starting your long rest um and the conversations that arise from there is where you can finally reveal that tragic backstory maybe you've been saving or, um, you know, ask a question like, uh, I've, I've had an NPC do this. It was amazing. Um, he just said, uh, what was your first kill? Hmm. And everyone just described their character's first kill. Um, and it was super interesting to see, like, how that affected them, the trauma, or how young they were when it happened. Like, it revealed so much about everyone's characters. Um, and it brings me back to thinking of that Star Wars game while they're in the ship and I could just snap my fingers and say banter. Like if you if you want a story driven game with strong characters and, and big narrative payoff, like having players talk to each other um, while not in combat, while just being around each other and interacting with each other during downtime can make everything so much better. This reminds me of uh, Edge of Empire again, where every character starts with a obligation. Yes, and yes. usually it is attached These to tables the NPC are great. in the world, and like whether that's family or not, it's. Um, it, it gives each player an NPC to kind of hang adventures and quests on. And if not that, then just conversations and further sure. world building and character building. Like this is my yes. uncle who like I have a huge debt to because he saved me from a rancor at the early age, whatever. So make it yeah, it, yeah, especially I'm thinking of the sending spell um, using that. They've been using it a lot on Critical Role. Um, and just checking in with NPCs, which, oh my gosh, would terrify me as Matt, uh, Mercer, the dungeon master, like having his players uh, just be like, oh, that, that remember that guard captain in that town we were in uh, a few months ago? Yeah, I want to talk to him. And the sending spell can do that if they're on the same plane of existence. Um, and so Matt's got to remember all of like the, you know, how the characters sound, their accents, their... <laughs> um, but but that's that's often a fun thing to do is to check in with with other parts of the world, um, maybe using a magic item or maybe using a spell um, to see how the world is changing, how things are going with family, friends, back at the stronghold, home base, whatever. Yeah, I don't know how he could manage that without like the craziest cheat sheet uh, of all time. No, that's a he he was said it somewhere I think on Twitter. It's like what you know, it's like player name, uh, what they sound like or impression, um, and like yeah. Their goals, their stuff. Because, yeah, you have to. You can't just be like, oh, that guard captain? Well, hey there. (laughs) Welcome to the Question Vault. Each week we answer one of your questions. This week uh, we have a question from Sam on Twitter who asks, what is your favorite dragon and why? Uh, Jake, what do you got? So for my uh, chromatic dragon, I think I'm going to go with white. Hmm. I think white is really underutilized. Um, and I really like the, just the cold uh, magic um, of it. And yeah, I think they're underrated. I haven't seen, I, of all the, the colors of dragons, I think I have not seen white that much. No. Probably red. Oh. Red is a classic dragon color. And I cannot think of anything that is more scary than a red dragon. Hmm. Uh, if, I'm, if we're talking dragon. Um, mine is going to be green, if only because I feel like I've run a lot of green dragons lately, and I know there's one coming that's going to be, uh, ooh, so tasty. 
Um, <laughs> the players already know about it, so it's not a spoiler. But just because uh, there's this concept, it was in the Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park, the novel, the original novel. And there was a dinosaur in there called a Carnotaurus. I don't know why I remember that. But it, <laughs> it had the ability to, um, it, it, its scales were chameleon-like. Or not scales, its skin was chameleon-like. And the idea of being in a forest that's very green and woodsy, and you just see something, like you see the forest shift in a way, and it's a, it's a huge green dragon that's just blended in. Um, it's a powerful image and a oh, terrifying situation. Dude. Spooky. Well, one of my favorite moments in D&D was way back when I was doing my kind of homebrewed uh, Rise of Tiamat, and my players were trying to rescue this guy on this island in a lake. Um, there's like the series of islands, and yeah, they get on the islands, and the islands start raising, and you realize it was just a giant ancient green dragon that was sleeping in the lake, um, and the the like spikes of his back look like dead trees, like on uh, on islands in the lake. Oh, Heck so no! Cool. Heck no! Oh, um, yeah. Favorite dragon from fiction? Mine would probably be Sephira from the Aragon series, <laughs> which I used to call Eragon. <laughs> Eragon? <laughs> I was a fan of Eragon. <laughs> I did call it that. Uh, um, sorry, that ech was not for uh, Aragon. It was just for like gross mispronunciation. And then, like, I imagine you go to a uh, fan convention and you're like, "Oh my!" They're God. all saying it wrong. <laughs> oh, no. no, I when my mom read the first two Harry Potter books to me, uh, she called Hermione Herminoin. Herminoin. Uh, we called her Hermione <laughs> because it's not a word that ex- that anyone knew about until those books. Yeah, Hermione. That Hermione. Uh, favorite funny. dragon from fiction. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Dragonheart, but that was Sean Connery as a really crappy oh CG dragon. Oh my gosh! Yet, oh, I'm fond of memories of that movie. Um, actually, um, I bet it's terrible. I'm going to give the edge to. Um, uh, well, see, I can't even remember the names of the dragons from Game of Thrones, because those were uh, technically oh, wyverns, yeah. but they yeah. were they were just yes. very well executed, like as uh, characters, Grogon. as weapons, as special effects, uh, right up until the end when uh, everyone stopped being a fan of Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, but those dragons I thought were just superbly terrifying creatures. Yes, they fit so well as. They felt both like characters and uh, nuclear missiles. Yep. Like, it was really cool to see that kind of the danger and the personality of each one. Yep. Yeah. I think they, they nailed it. For me, the budget, too. For me, I think the most influential dragon that I can think of from my childhood was the dragon from The Hobbit, like the animated one. Smaug. Mm-hmm. So, Smaug. I hate that it's pronounced that way. But it's like, and I'm uh, not. This was before Benedict Cumberbatch played the mm-hmm. dragon, but it's just like very like classic, like cliche, like dragon. Yeah, I mean, that was a prototypical talking dragon in The Hobbit, and it's like, yeah. and it's kind of like what we what we think of like when we think of dragons, you know, sleeping over a port of treasure. Yeah, yeah, it's very influential. Tolkien does it again. <laughs> he did it first, so. <laughs> thank you for listening to vox arcana episode 60 i'm william i'm jake and i'm david we'll see you next time <laughs>